This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hi, it's Taryn Hayes from Lydia Project. Welcome again. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing with you a chat that I had with Jill McAlpine. Now, Jill is someone who has experienced the hardships of life in a number of ways, some of which she will share with us today in this chat. Uh, She and her husband, Stephen, have had to face a diagnosis of a fatal disease and the miraculous recovery of the same, which is a beautiful story. Some of the other hardships that they've experienced have included church ministry hurt, both here in Australia and abroad. And these experiences have helped to shape how they do ministry and how they help other churches work through leadership difficulties and similar problems. Jill also works as a clinical psychologist, and as she explains, her work with refugees in Perth has been both challenging and rewarding. All up, I love chatting with Jill and learning from her about keeping God central, even through, well, especially through the toughest and most emotionally difficult days. Jill, it is great to have you. Thank you for coming on to chat to me on The Lydia Project. Thank you, Taryn. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm so excited to meet you too. (laughs) How we usually start these interviews is to ask you a little bit about your background, particularly how you came to faith in Christ. So how about we start there? Great. Well, um, I was born into a Christian family. Um, So born in South Africa. And my experience of church was from as long as I can remember. And uh, so as part of the Methodist uh, church uh, movement in South Africa and always it was just part of life so both sides of family mum's side and dad's side we had leg preachers in our family and it was just my normal and so it was something that was uh, that that I grew up into something that then became quite intellectualized you know into my young adulthood but it wasn't until my early to early to mid adulthood that I actually had what I consider my my own personal conversion experience you know where what I knew in my head translated to my heart and was the most unusual context. Uh, I would not have anticipated that's how it would have happened, but um, I was at a, a meeting at a church here in Perth. Um, so we moved to Australia when I was 14, 10 years later, in a meeting at a church and we had a talk by a bikey <laughs> called John Smith and it was quite wow <laughs> and I, I I remember in that moment thinking okay I know all of this stuff but now I'm I'm really feeling it um and it's interesting my response was not ah joy you know but it was more so uh, almost a sense of grief at uh, not having encapsulated this and 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 had this um at, at a personal level resonating um you know growing up so um I would have to say that was a significant moment for me um we're all sort of came together through a bikey <laughs> um, and um, it has been imprinted on my heart you know since then um, one of the the my experiences as a child um, I think I've mentioned this to you earlier um, as a five-year-old you know in in my Sunday school um, in South Africa we had an anniversary and 
one of the, uh, so each child had to recite um, a, a memory verse, you know, from the Bible to the congregation. And, and my verse was, uh, was John 3.16. And it has always been there, you know, King James Version, of course. And so it's always resonated. <laughs> but now as a, an older lady, I get to see and experience, you know, God. I get to engage people in, in their own experiences of the gospel. And uh, so that's been quite, quite nifty. So there is much that's happened since then in your life, pretty significant and defining moments in your ministry, as I imagine you will tell us about a bit later. But somewhere on this journey, you met your husband, Stephen. So tell us about that. Okay, so this is a quite a long time ago now. So I'm, I'm in my 50s now. And um, so I, we, we realized that we've known each other for more than half of our lives, you know, so so we are, that totally amazes us <laughs> that God has brought us into our lives. But how it actually happened was I was working in the country as a teacher back then during my two years hard labour. And um, I was away from home, of course, uh, living away from home. And at the time, my family, who were attending a church here in Perth, were seeking a youth pastor. And Stephen came along and apparently got to know my, my brother, who was on the selection panel, and um, my mum, who was, you know, um, helping coordinate the Sunday school. And I, when I came back from my two years of, of country service, we would get these phone calls from this person. <laughs> uh, we'd call through, wanted to speak to even my brother and my mum. And I'd, you know, hand the phone over when I returned. I then attended church um, coming back and... I remember hearing him preach from the pulpit and I thought, oh, there's something quite different about this person. <laughs> Who is this person? And, you know, for the first time in a while, I actually took note of the sermon and I was most impressed by him in his younghood <laughs> and um, also by, by how he spoke of Jesus. And uh, I remember shaking his hand um, thinking, wow, <laughs> I need to know you. And it wasn't until the following week, I think, where he actually started to notice me. <laughs> and it was in the context of a, a, a meeting that I'd gone into to, to grab my guitar. And I remember thinking, not only are you uh, an outstanding speaker and you, you have great integrity, but you've got amazing teeth <laughs> and sparkling blue eyes. <laughs> and the rest is history. So, um, yeah, I think when you're in that moment that we were destined to have you know a life together and it was going to look like it was within the context of of serving God <laughs> so yes we met in the church <laughs> and we still a lot of churches <laughs> so your relationship obviously you guys got married and um had you ever imagined that you would be in a ministry marriage never never I think when we became engaged, um, it was quite a crisis point for me because it then dawned on me that our connection was within the context of church. Stephen had at that point, so he studied earlier to be a journalist. So he was a journalist at that stage, but at the point of our engagement, he decided to undertake theological study and I then uh, furthered my study in psychology. And so we both pretty much the year of our engagement, we both went back to uni <laughs> full time. So we quit work, went back to uni and we thought, how is this going to work? Uh, but also this means that my life is going to look very different. So I did push back thinking this is not going to be easy. And uh how, how are we going to do this? So we, we had a lot of good counsel from people. Um, we um, approached this um, with head as well as heart. And we then made the decision that this is where God 
is, is wanting for us to be, then rather than fight it, <laughs> let's just see. Let's just be obedient and, and see where it where he leads us. And that journey has been quite quite incredible, quite challenging, <laughs> but also um, it has been full of, of beautiful moments too. Where, where would you say, like if you had to summarise your, your ministry, or how about we just start with where did you guys end up in terms of ministry together after you got married and where has that journey taken you? Well, we've, within the Perth context, of course, we, uh, when Steve, uh, Stephen finished his theological studies, we were part of a, a church in Perth. So it was an Anglican um, church. And I'd have to say it was quite foundational for us because we were part of a, a group of young people our age. I think we were all singles back then, you know. And it's interesting now that when we look back um, and we're looking at what two, almost three decades worth of, of life, we are still connected here in the, in the Perth context, in various contexts, various settings, and still faithful to God and still faithful, you know, to each other in, in our marriages. Um, so that's been really encouraging and, and foundational for us. We have been called into so many different denominations <laughs> and churches and expressions of church. And again, you know, just being open to the need, being open to where it is that, that God has, has wanted us and, and drawn us, that it's taken us, yes, around Perth, but then also taken us overseas, really wanting to understand how it is that we can serve God, but also serve his people and to serve um, our world. We do have a watching world. And so we we made some pretty drastic decisions. Both Steve and I, Stephen and I are very, we, we like to think things through. We like to do a lot of talking, always talking, and we are quite measured in our decision-making. But one decision that was almost, I don't know what came over us, <laughs> we, we made an almost instant decision to go overseas and have a look at different ways of doing church to then change the way that we were doing things here in Perth. And so that was also a foundational, quite a life-changing experience for us because um, I think that that was the hinge, the pivot, in terms of how it then continued to shape ministry for us. So if I'm correct, is that when you joined the Crowded House crowd? Yes, that's okay. right. So could you share a little bit about that? I know it was quite a tumultuous time for you guys and I imagine there will probably be some pros as well as cons, um, some good experiences as well as negative experiences. So maybe if we could just start with the things that you found really beneficial from your time there. We felt instantly that we were coming into a, a community, um, a really strong, tight-knit community of, of people. And so from day one, we, we felt almost enveloped, <laughs> you know, and uh, we felt something was something was different <laughs> something was just different this was not a side-by-side -side sort of you know church experience of people just coming together on a Sunday and then you know dwindling off into their various contexts of life during the week was how we would describe it and how we were explained it um, was life on life everyday life it was about you opening your your home, your heart, your life, your family to to other people. Um, so on any given day, we would be 
interacting, you know, so in, in thick, rich and, and deep relationships um, with others and also having a, a missional focus of being in the community. So where we lived in Sheffield, we lived in a community where um, the majority of people were, were Muslim <laughs> um, and we sent our daughter to a school that was down the road and, again, you know, very diverse in terms of ethnic backgrounds and so on. So it was just a, a wonderful experience for us. Coming from um, Perth, which is quite homogenous <laughs> culturally back then, quite bland, everything's spread out, you have to drive everywhere, to a community where everything was within reach, uh, including people. And you, I imagine that was quite a positive thing. It was quite a positive thing. Uh, I'd have to say back then, that's when Stephen was quite his extroverted self. <laughs> people see him as an extrovert, he's changed now. Um, I, I'm I'm a huge introvert and so for me it was quite a challenge to to open myself up you know and so instantly to people my way of getting to know people or people getting to know me is is, is I call it the the slow cooker version <laughs> um, whereas Stephen was the microwave you know um, and so mm-hmm. for me it required quite a bit of adjustment and particularly given that I was a mum our daughter was five at the time um, so we pulled her out of school so we had to juggle family, young family, also being away from our family um, and also from uh, away from our very supportive church that we were part of in back in Australia. Um, that was quite hard. So there were moments where I was quite homesick. The joy was um, in some of the, the relationships that we developed there, but also seeing Australian people come over and staying in our loft, <laughs> our four-storey little townhouse loft. So we, we managed. <laughs> Yeah, so some positives, some difficulties, obviously, as you know, having to do life with our various personality types. But at some point, you saw some red flags with the way the ministry was going. Are you able to share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the red flags are, you know, we call them red flags, but quite often the red flags are not very obvious. Um, And so the challenge is not being able to fully label them. Um, or to see them, but there's just something there that doesn't quite sit right, you know. Um, and so I think that's part of the red flags is, you know, questioning oneself, saying, is this, am I seeing this right? Am I hearing this right? Um, and then people are saying things. Um, so either then validates what you're saying, what doesn't. And and you, you start to go into this, uh, like a, a confusion spiral in your head. Um, um, but I think for us, what was different for us was that we came in with fresh eyes from outside through Australian eyes as well. So apart from the cultural differences of, you know, the Australian way of just being, ha-ha, we're here, um, we, the English Reserve was, was, was another barren challenge. Um, but aside from that, um, we did notice um, that there were some people struggling within the crowded house. They didn't feel as though they had a voice. Um, they, they sought us out. Um, and we then became their voice, um, asking questions, and, and that was not received very well. The point of, of going over there was to understand how we could bring back um, a, a different way of doing church uh, to Australia and contextualise it within our Australian um, setting um, and people. And uh, so after a year, we came back to Australia and we endeavoured to um, plant a church in our little living room, you know, in, in our home in the foothills of Perth. Um, the plan was also to 
bring a couple over to, to Perth um, who are going to help us. So bring them over from, from England, from Sheffield, to help us. So they, they came and stayed with us. And I think that's where if there were defining moments in our ministry, that was a hugely shaping moment <laughs> um, where we realised that what we had seen and experienced in, in, in the crowded house was, was actually, it, it was really unhealthy <laughs> and quite destructive and, and, and quite damaging. So from other conversations that we've had, you were saying one of the fairly destructive things was this kind of almost like the church owned your lives. Is that right? So you had to filter your decisions, your day-to-day at home, family, private decisions, had to kind of filter through what the church would allow and accept. Yeah, so, so big decisions um, such as, for example, where should we buy a house? <laughs> so that, that was a big thing, you know, um, given that um, the, the model was about being in community and, and so buying a house, where to buy a house was quite instrumental because it's not just about a house with a family but also about how you were then positioned as a, mem- a member of the church within the community. Um, so everything was quite strategic in that sense. Sheffield's a, a university district now, um, used to be a coal mining district, um, so a lot of the members of the church were university students travelling in from other parts of the UK. So summer break, for example, during the holidays, you know, the, the encouragement was rather than heading home was to stay and be part of the the, the summer sort of missional sort of activities, um, for example. So so those were, it doesn't sound like a big thing, but, but those are things there that were just little things that became big things and um, that the sense of even though it may not have been spoken <laughs> but but just needing to filter aspects of your life to be vetoed that for us coming from Australia you know you make your own decisions and being a little older than than most of the people in the congregation that didn't sit right for us and then you were saying because I did interrupt you you brought that back to Australia and then you started to see these differences in a bigger way um, yeah yeah. Go ahead with that. We, we, we realise that when you think about the two landscapes, um, the UK, um, so Sheffield, you know, you, you can access everything on foot compared to living in Perth where you're driving miles and miles and miles to, well, just to, to see your family. <laughs> um, it's not a next door, we're going to pop a next door sort of thing. And so that alone, when we think about the geographical um, proximity of, of, of people, um, Perth becomes more regional, um, where Sheffield is more local. So life on life, popping into people's houses, um, you know, meeting with people during their lunch break, you know, at uni, for example, at work, it didn't quite quite fit. So the demands placed on the families here within the Australian context were far greater. Um, and also we were older, had children, um, not being single. And so having someone pop around to your house, you know, for dinner and then staying lingering <laughs> uh, for a few hours when you've got the kids who need to go down to sleep and be fed, it, it, it didn't quite fit the demographic. Um, it didn't fit the geographical um, the aspect. Um, and, again, the buy-in was really, really high. The bar was really, really high. We struggled to make it work. We then had a couple come over and this was the intention for them to, to help, you know, grow this, this church plant. But there was a moment, a pivotal moment, where we, I remember in our country kitchen, you know, we had a big table um, in the middle of the kitchen. I had a baby who was sleeping. My, my son was um, 
just almost uh, one and a half, almost, um, a daughter in school. And um, we, I was about to sit down for lunch. And so we had this couple at the table, my husband and, and the male partner on the other side and me with, with his wife on the other side of the table. And that conversation was really quite brutal. <laughs> we, we were told, um, we were informed that our parenting wasn't up to speed and so that they were not parents themselves. Um, we were told that um, I should not be working as a psychologist in private practice because it's not good for the family. We were told that um, Stephen was not um, cut out for, for, for ministry or for leading, um, you know, a church. Um, and this is after several experiences of, of ministry. So, so pretty much I remember if there's a way to describe it, if there, were a, if there was a visual, uh, there were four of us at the table, uh, tissues strewn all over my side <laughs> and you know in one conversation Taryn it was as if we were broken down everything that we that that, were, that was confirmed in us in, in, with regards to our purpose God's calling every aspect of who we were our strivings our endeavors our endeavors to love his people it was just shredded um, like it went through a paper shredder <laughs> and we were just we sat there quite violated thinking what what's what's going on <laughs> what just happened you know um, I don't know it was like a blur but I just remembered emotionally uh, I was emotionally all over the table in those those scrunched up tissues um, and then we we had to keep going we had to keep going because I had to pick my daughter up I had to attend to my son you know his baby and um, front up to our friends to our church and we felt that we at that moment we were so deconstructed um, and we had no nowhere to go other than to seek God out. I, I remember for for months, for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, and whilst they were still in that house, you know, for two of those weeks, we soothed our way through, the only way I can say is we soothed our, soothed our way through our suffering, you know, just praying through the Psalms. Um, it was kind of like a self you know on our souls we were so hurt and bruised and and we we just read through the psalms we just prayed went to bed oh quite um sorrowful <laughs> woke up quite angry you know and and that was just us resonating with something that we had not experienced and that was I would say our personal experience of the crowded house was not in the UK, it was more so within the context of Perth, Australia. Um, and that's where we we identified and we <laughs> acknowledged the hurt and um, how people were feeling back there and what they were saying, it then made sense to us. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's one thing to suffer alongside somebody and you do suffer when you're suffering alongside somebody, but it does take on a different, um, Experience when you've experienced it for yourself and I often wonder if it's a lot worse when you've watched it happen to somebody else and then it happens to you yeah it happens to you if it's if it's worse in some way um, than if it just happened to you without you watching somebody else go through it's almost like injury upon injury um, yes yeah absolutely it's I, I think there's something that is so bonding you know about the experience of 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 hurt, of a collective hurt. Um, mm. It's and, and, and you know at the time we did not know what what God's hand was. You know we didn't know 
what this was all about for us. But you know how it's, it's always, it's so much easier to see God's hand in situations retrospectively. That was one of those experiences where we had to hold and almost shut that down. You know, when you're resonating with the hurt so strongly, the more hurtful thing was, was holding onto it and pushing it down in order to maintain integrity, in order to not slander, you know. And we trusted God and we, we waited and waited and waited. And there were a handful of people who we did talk to about this. You know, even our church, the church plant just oh, crumbled, you know, after that conversation. We had to even hold it from them in terms of, so we, we, we kind of copped a lot <laughs> when we said, look, this is not a healthy dynamic. We have to close this. We have to shut this church plant down. We had to carry the hurt that they felt being abandoned by another couple of leaders, which is us really, me and Stephen. So we had to hold that and, and we had to just love them through that and soothe ourselves through that as well and not disclose too much. And it wasn't until, Taryn, you know, 10 years later, of course, with recent events now, over the years, over the years when we'd left the crowded house, we started to hear from people who we had not heard from when, when all of this went down in, in Perth. And Stephen started to get emails and messages from people saying, remember, remember us, remember me, and, and started making those connections again. Um, and these were coming back to those people who welcomed and embraced us so, so warmly, you know, when we arrived there. And the stories started to come out. And again, similar stories, similar words, similar hurts. Um, and it then started to become the, that bonded, that collective of, of hurt, but also that collective resilience, you know, where we there for each other. And so we spent a lot of time, Stephen spent a lot of time with people just talking through their experiences because, again, having a platform <laughs> to talk and express, I think, is such a healing process and done in grace as well. So that's, so that's how more recently the collective voice was heard and um, I know that there have been experiences now where this dynamic within the crowded house was exposed and people were given an opportunity through a formal review to talk about their experiences of, of hurt. So that, that has, again, been hugely instrumental for us and in one sense making us, making Stephen a safe leader because, you know, when you experience that, you become more aware and more considerate of, of how it is that you come across and how you treat people. And so that has been quite shaping, but I think a good shaping, a necessary one, even though it was quite painful. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly something I've observed, especially in these kind of circumstances um, where there has been an unhelpful leadership or abuse of powers or whatever, you know, whatever the situation has been. It's been interesting to watch how the people who've been close to that are shaped and changed by it. How did you deal with that accusations? Because, you know, sometimes people get alongside us and they make us aware of something in our, ourselves, which is... And they write about it. Um, how, did, how were you guys able to work through these accusations that were laid at your feet that were very hurtful and mm. try and, you know, get from that what is true and what is not true and, you know, to, to be able to know with great certainty what the truth was and how did you, how did you carry that out from then on? The, the, the beautiful thing was that 
um, and uh, this has transpired now into a, another positive, wonderful story. But um, the beautiful thing that that it was that was quite a tight, um, close community, but but earthy. So when we think about earthy, Australian earthy, um, these were people who um, you know had common experiences of life, similar life stages, um, similar thinkings, um, acknowledging the struggles. You know, so struggle, acknowledging struggle. Is is a was a real tangible theme in our experience in the UK. Struggle, you just you know, struggle doesn't or shouldn't happen. <laughs> um, and so I think the the vulnerability of the church plant that didn't survive in in Australia was that um, those real relationships were then their connector points, um, and we still maintained our relationship with them. So this is not anything that we've done other than God's grace and mercy, you know, that He's shown that is shown on, on that situation, um, that even though we we felt that we had let them down, <laughs> there was enough grace there um, for them to continue to love on us, you know. And we, how we managed this uh, at an emotional level was um, having a very close, um, like a handful of people who were not, the church but outside so our close friends going all the way back to you know those foundational years <laughs> where we as young people you know connected with other young Christians a handful of those people who knew us um, who were there praying for us and supporting us and encouraging us um, we we had to maintain those those um, relationships um, those godly relationships so um, I think that's how we we managed again opening ourselves up to rather than sitting here where is it that God is now wanting for us to be? And, and I think having a, a future perspective um, rather than licking our wounds um, um, was something that was helpful. I think it was around about then we experienced life quite brutally again. Stephen became quite unwell, lost a lot of weight. Uh, I think it was about 20 kilos in a very short amount of time. He had to be admitted to hospital, stayed overnight, um, and uh, we were called in a couple of days later um, and we were told that he had pancreatic cancer. Um, so this is all around the same time that, you know, we, we had that conversation, <laughs> the, the, the church plant kind of um, didn't survive and we were then hit with this this news so the baby and you know a seven-year-old at home it was it was quite brutal uh, and I remember the um, endocrinologist um, so we, we had a friend looking after our children uh, Stephen and I were called into his, his consulting rooms and he said um, do you know what pancreatic cancer is and Crazily, I thought, I, I said, oh, is that not what Patrick Swayze had, you know? <laughs> and um, he said, yes. And my mind just kind of went into this spiral of I was trying to activate my, my executive thinking, my functioning, thinking, okay, um, bank accounts, um, um, I need to work out all the codes, I mean, you know. So already I projected myself into the future. <laughs> and then he said, how do you feel? You know, the, the oncologist said, the, the, the um, endocrinologist said, how do you feel about that? And the only thing I could say to him was, um, we're Christian. <laughs> uh, you know, I said, we're, we're Christian. And if I can describe what happened, you know, in that room, it was as if God's comfort, it just 
filled that that consulting room and I remember there was so much clutter books and you know equipment and but the clutter was more my my despair and, and my disbelief um I I knew I couldn't I couldn't fix this um I was trying to work out how can I how can I manage this and I realized that was beyond me um the only option that we had was to lean into God um and hand this over to him um I couldn't work out a way to make this right <laughs> life was uncertain it was unstable and in you know the only thing I could do was to lean into God and know that he had us covered and it was going to be okay no matter what the outcome and the outcome wasn't looking good <laughs> so yeah that response of you know we, we are Christian <laughs> and it was met by his response, which was, so am I. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like God was, he was just giving us a big hug. Um, so we went home in the dark. It was an, a late night consult, of course, he invited us in and um, went home to our family and then just fell into the arms of, of our friends who were looking after our kids at the time. That experience coupled with you're not cut out for ministry, you shouldn't be doing this as a cycle, yeah, everything just did not make sense <laughs> and we were completely vulnerable and exposed to to God's plan for us even though that was the case we actually felt like yep this we're, we're okay we, we actually were going to be okay <laughs> we had nothing so very very pivotal moment for us I think in our ministry Absolutely. I mean, that that really does feel like being punched when you're already down. How did you? He seems to be okay now. What happened with the cancer? I think. Um, well, I, I I choose to believe it. it was a miracle because I did say I did ask the endocrinologist to you know what, what's the prognosis, and he said um, the only other person who um, you know whose um, scans were worse than this who survived. You know, he said that was a miracle. <laughs> And uh, so we, we thought, oh, well, this is it. He knows what he's talking about. Um, the, the tumour is quite large. And, and so we activated. We, we just pretty much we had this outpouring of love and prayer around the world, including people from within the crowded house. Um, and they were gracious. And they loved on us. And people brought food <laughs> and comfort. And we had... You know, um, Stephen was in hospital or had the kids at home. When he finally was able to make it, so he came home, I think he was um, around about 58 kilos, um, he's six foot tall, with a massive scar, you know, so they removed multiple organs. And um, by the time they got to the surgery, the investigative surgery, the tumour had just pretty much gone. <laughs> um, so this was over a period of, of several weeks until surgery. Um, so either technically, medically, it was a misdiagnosis or it was just God. And either way, God was in control. And I, I just choose to believe that he was so, he, he is good and he was merciful and he is merciful and, and we were just loved on by him and his people. So, yeah, praise God that he has allowed Stephen to enter into, we call it the second phase of ministry. <laughs> it was not meant to end there. What an incredible story and that must, have, that must have been such a relief and such a moment of praise when you found out, when he came out of surgery to find out that the 
he may have disappeared. He he went through a long process of healing and recovery, and so that's you know just physical healing it was almost um, symbolic of the healing that we had to go through emotionally. Um, and so it was as, as if God, you know, gave him this enforced rest period <laughs> where he couldn't focus on anything other than just coming back to basics. And, and that's how we kind of limp through life. And so, of course, you know, I, I, when I see a person, um, the way that God has designed us, we are so integrated and complex, you know, we are mind, body, soul, spirit, all entwined. And um, so his body was, Stephen's body was weak. Um, his spirit was just low and <laughs> there was depression in the mix as well and um, confusion and his mind wasn't functioning as well. So in every aspect, he, he was deconstructed and he had to work away to reconstruct. Um, and, and God's plan then was was the map <laughs> in terms of, again, you know, how he has brought us to where we are at the moment in life. We would never have engineered this or wanted to, but I always say that even though that was horrendous, you know, having gone through that um, together, we didn't want it. Um, I would not want it again or for anyone, however it needed to happen. And we are thankful for the pain and the hurt and the sorrow, the grief, all of that, we're, we're thankful for that, for how it is that God has shaped us through it and how we see God, how we, we work together as a, a couple, but also how we do ministry. You know? yeah. How was that time for you? Because you were imagining having to support your husband while also carrying enormous amounts of emotional baggage yourself. I remember the day after being in the consulting room and being the endocrinologist, um, I, I went into work. So I had a full day of, of consults. And it's interesting, when I look back now, that day was full of loss um, and, and grief. So when I even go back and look over my diary and the stories that, you know, I was, was helping people through, my first client was a a twin, an, an older man who had lost his brother to cancer and we were sitting there talking through his grief. My husband's a twin, <laughs> you know, and so it was just, wow, what, what, is, what is happening? What's going on? Um, but maybe for me that was my way of being able to process and vicariously make sense and vicariously heal <laughs> my hurt, you know, um, and I've always found I've, I've, I've been in that space as a psychologist where I'm in such a privileged position of being let into people's lives and let into their stories and, and be trusted with, with their stories and, and with themselves that a lot of my time I, I can see myself in, in their stories, not that I'm going to say, hey, listen to me, <laughs> but, but more so it just really helps me to, to connect, um, you know, and, and have empathy and compassion you know, for them. So a lot of my life is also vicarious, yeah. <laughs> living through other people. But how rewarding as well. And as I'm listening to you, my, I'm thinking what a privilege that is to be able to be in a position where oh. you can actually be shaped and grown by the Lord through being in a position of caring for others and supporting them 
it's very hard to not hear God's teaching when we are speaking it to others. Every day I, I'm reminded of, of God's goodness and grace, you know. I, um, I, I go into my workplace as a, as a clinical psychologist and I start the day at 9 I, I come home at about 6, 6.30 at night and the day is meted out in, in hourly lots. Um, I have a lunch break, <laughs> one hour. Um, and so I go into my workplace every day praying. Um, so I take my son to school and we pray about halfway through as we, you know, uh, 10 minutes into school, we, we start praying. And then I drop him off. And then as I'm heading to the post office before work, you know, I, I pray for my day and I pray in my inadequacy. I pray in my inability to save the world. <laughs> in, in all of my weakness, I, I pray that God will use me in, in however he chooses to bless others. Um, and so I'm reminded constantly of, of, of who he is and, and how he comes into my workspace and how he's there guiding me <laughs> and helping me you know, have the right words and presence and the compassion. And, you know, so it, it's hard, but I, and I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and I know that he is, he's with me and he's with my clients. You know. So a very interesting job for somebody who identifies as a strong introvert because you're engaging with people all day long. You must be exhausted by the end. What actually brought you to change from teaching to becoming a clinical psychologist? I think it's the, well, teaching you in a large group, aren't you? So, <laughs> and the output, your, your, your client or your, the, the, the person you're working with is not just the student. Um, you're working within the system of the school and then the, the, the system of, of the child's family. And there are so many components and aspects to consider. And it, the actual teaching component becomes so watered down, you know, um, when we think about teaching as well, it's um, you're teaching content um, and not often are you engaging what is beneath the content. So why is this, this student um, not engaged? Why is this student unmotivated? Why is this student, you know, having these emotional outbursts in the classroom? And so we, we label <laughs> and we, we put children into boxes and, and we don't fully understand who they are as people you know, and, and their families and so on. So I think when, when I went through uni um, my primary focus was on psychology so studying psychology I then tagged the teaching um, onto it in order that I could teach um, went into school psychology and then school system psychology and I then felt that my yearning was to be in the one-to-one -one individual you know working with with a person another person in the room individually rather than as a collective I as an introvert I guess not that today is a great example, but um, my endeavour to listen <laughs> is is always going to be stronger than my need to be on the platform speaking. <laughs> so it suits me, yes, and, and to let their words run and, and to be there as a, a quiet presence. A lot of what you say resonates. I mean, everything that we've spoken about so far resonates quite a lot. And I also studied psychology at uni, also went into teaching, um, never carried on with psychology, although over the last few years, I've, I've often wondered if it wasn't something I could do now or should have done at some point because of the great need, just the great need. And I've 
often find myself in in a position of being you know the listening ear or the confidant for somebody who's who's been going through hard times and so mm-hmm. um you know very much identify with so many things that you're saying it's very I just want to sit down and compare more notes <laughs> early on in our conversation you were saying how much you guys you and Stephen learned through the difficult things that you've gone through and it's helped shape how you are in terms of ministry and just being a whole lot more self-aware and being careful about not repeating the mistakes or the pe- repeating bad behaviors that you've seen in, in other contexts. Um, I think I might be elaborating a little bit on what you were saying. So I imagine that's been really, really helpful for your ministry, especially as you've been involved with Providence Church for, is it 11 years? Yes. So that that church, Providence Church, then uh, sprung out of the, the, the second, you know, house house plant that we did so mark two <laughs> um is uh, where we are now in province midland yeah so tell us a little bit about how that started and how providence is going i know you've got two was it three venues now yes so the previous church that we were involved in as as much younger people um there were quite a significant group of people who were blessed to plant a church out of that church, okay, which which then was Providence uh, Church. Um, so the, as a collective, Providence Church, Perth City. And the mission has always been to plant more churches. The need is so great. And, and here in WA in particular, you know, it's a beautiful place, beautiful beaches, and uh, we don't really need Jesus in this place, you know. And so it's so easy to become worldly and <laughs> give ourselves over to, the, to life and the lifestyle. But it's a very dark place spiritually. And so the mission has always been to plant churches, to, to highlight and showcase who Jesus is and how we kind of fall short if we keep our sights set quite low. <laughs> and so out of that sprung Providence Midland, which is uh, a bigger version of our lounge room and so we've, again, accessed many buildings. I think it was a church, a bank, um, a sports centre, an, an older church that, you know, was um, had a capacity for 100 people. Um, and then currently we are sitting in an auditorium, you know. So, so God has been so gracious in that sense. Where we are at the moment is uh, feeling that we need to and and god is calling stephen to into other contexts so he has other work based in sydney but working from perth and so where we are at the moment has pretty much been about handing over the baton to next generation and we ministry wise are now there for other churches so currently we are supporting another church in perth um, as they go through their struggles. Um, and yes, it might look transitional and temporary, but we always feel that whether it's a formal in a formal way or in an informal way, our experiences that have broken us makes us not the experts. We're not experts. We're not here to tell. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. He's not a perfect leader. This is really about in in our brokenness, you know, how can we help you? This is really how um, God has positioned um, us at the moment. So currently we are kind of like in a ministry secondment almost, you know, helping another church out. Our daughter attends um, Prop Midland, um, and so this is her. She grew up in, in, into that church and, and my son as well. So um, we we feel loved on. Church is, is a collective <laughs> for us. 
and you know we, we have strong friendships around her that is that have been really good so again it's amazing how god uses our experiences in life to allow us to help others and I like what you had to say about you know not being perfect and yet being able to be of help to others um yeah um, what, what would you say is big on your radar at the moment? Um, is it, yeah, I mean, I imagine much of it is what we've talked about, but what else is big on your radar at the moment? Um, I think at the moment too, um, you know, just thinking about how we, how we care for others. Um, we, we spend a lot of time, I think, you know, in society talking about how we care for ourselves, you know, we talk about self-care a lot, which is a good thing. But I think as, as Christians, you know, in this world, we, we do have a watching world. So we, people look at us as Christians and they, they might have whole certain views of us that are quite negative. But in spite of that, we, we, do, we are charged with looking after our world and, and environment, our people. Um, and so for me, my, my thinking more recently has been about how we shift from just purely looking after ourselves um, not necessarily just looking after others, but how we collectively look after each other, how we care for each other. And, and one of the contexts, of course, in, in my life is, is my work. Um, and a big context or a big uh, dynamic or demographic at the moment is, is being positioned to, to, to care for women who are in abusive relationships um, or who are coming out of or who have left abusive relationships. Um, this has been quite a long time coming in that uh, I remember um, in, in a previous, you know, um, life. So when we, we go back to our life, planning a church, you know, in, in our home, we, Stephen and I used to pray for our, our community, our, our um, suburb, and um, we were made aware that there was a, a regional centre, a refuge, a women's refuge, um, who churches in the area were supporting and helping you know with practical resources and we we tried so hard to work out a way that we could also help and when you think about how refuges operate they're very closed of course very um, secure and so trust is a big thing and protection is very big so we just prayed and prayed that god would give us a way <laughs> a way to help and we thought just the practical white goods and clothing is not really going to be you know that's being supplied and, and they're well looked after in that regard. How can we help um, in a, a, a different way that, that's going to be robust um, and, and help to position these ladies? And so our church, again, Providence, the, the collective, um, held a fundraiser at, at um, UWA, University of Western Australia, and everyone that we knew who were you know, it was quite crafty and um, artistic, brought in their collection of artworks and we had paintings and, you know, sculptures and things like that. And we, we had an auction and we raised, I think it was about $10,000. <laughs> Half of that was uh, given to, I think it was a children's hospital in Africa. And half of it was to be donated to this particular refuge. When we, we announced it to them, um, they were just so overwhelmed and, they invited, you know, us in and I said, you know, how can we, how can we help you? How can we help the ladies? 
one of the, the, the big needs was that when we think about the demographic or the, the dynamic of, of women in these situations, they are so transient and life is unsettled and unstable for them. And because of this, this reason, when we think about supporting them emotionally, psychologically, they cannot pay. <laughs> um, they might not turn up because they have to attend court. And so it doesn't bode well you know, to, to take on clients who are just in a flurry of life. So we worked out an arrangement where they could access psychological services with me at no cost and for as long as they, they needed um, beyond even the time in their, their, their refuge. And so, so the arrangement, you know, started and I think it's been about seven, eight, eight years now, you know, where they they have been able to I've been able to support them in in whatever way they need and it's just been an, an absolute blessing um, I would say that would be one of the most wonderful things about me going to work <laughs> every day but also challenging <laughs> but do you do you um, keep aside a day a week or a fortnight to do that how does that work practically I think it's working with uh, again their schedule. Um, so we 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 do try to preference, of course, because um, when we think about how um, refugees operate, um, it's short-term accommodation. Um, um, women move on um, and their children, um, and it's all around safety issues as well. And so we try to accommodate them as much as 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 we can. So um, I, you know, coming back to your earlier question about, you know, going to work as a psychologist must be draining. I, I sometimes at work, I, I, I look at my schedule and it's all electronic and every, everyone is coded. So when we think about, say, for example, um, someone in a trauma situation, it's, it's coded uh, orange, you know. And so I can see from my schedule for the week, wow, this is an orange week. <laughs> and so we've got orange dotted all over the calendar. Um, and that just uh, notifies us and, and, and highlights that, yeah, we, we're going to be seeing um, this particular demographic of, of people. So, no, it's, it's, it's throughout the day, throughout the week, and sadly um, that is the case. Um, we're not just seeing one <laughs> here and there, but there's a lot of orange on the calendar. Um, yeah. and, uh, this is um, a, a, growing, a growing concern. Yeah. Well... How does that work from a, sorry, I was, the questions aren't clear, but as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, um, how does somebody who's gone through what so many of those women have gone through, who are transient, who don't necessarily know if they're even going to be in the same place tomorrow, how do they process their trauma and their grief um, and come to a place of mental health? Mm. It's, I, I always, the way I um, try to help uh, people understand what it's like for me looking at them and for them <laughs> engaging me is that these are amazing, incredible, fabulous, dynamic women. <laughs> I learn so much from them. I admire them. But they come to me and they hollowed out. You know, they have hollowed out. Their bodies are hunched over, hollowed out eyes lost lost souls and so they come to me in that that state and we work together we work together and you know the most incredible thing for me and this is 
quite an emotional thing is to see them fleshed out, you know, with a smile on their face, with red lipstick and, and with a plan and, and a future and a, a brighter future. And, and so that bit in the middle is, is where the work happens. Um, and it's not like they're coming into a, a car mechanic sort of, you know, workshop and <laughs> we're going to do yes. some work. In so, um, this is me um, acknowledging that I have to hold um, them gently. Um, I have to give them a platform where they can have a voice, um, where they can make decisions, where they can trust their mind, they can trust their gut. Um, and I'm going to be there with them in their space. I'm going to acknowledge them. I'm going to see them. I'm going to hear them. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to let their words run. And so when they come in or hollowed out, their insides, though, are just resonating. I call it, you know, revving high, like just revving. And that, that internal resonation of them having been in a fight, flight, fright, you know, context within their relationship, it's just them in absolutely complete, you know, hypervigilance mode. So a lot of what we then do together is not activate the executive functioning and thinking and because they come in and say, I don't know what to do. I can't think, you know, I'm losing my mind. And so it's, well, you know what, let's not, let's not you do the thinking. (laughs) That process is really all about soothing and settling and, and and smoothing out that, that, that strong um, fear response that they've been living with. And that's been so strongly conditioned in them. So for me, just being present and being a calm, non-anxious presence for them is so foundational and and, and fundamental so that they can come and breathe out (laughs) rather than feel like it's another context where they're breathing in. So being trauma-informed and acknowledging their struggle, I think, yeah, presence has a lot to do with it. What a privilege to be in that role and to be able to watch that and completely understand why it is so emotional for you to be able to speak about witnessing this hollowed out person being able to kind of flourish in the way that you get to see. Um, how do you find yourself um, keeping firm, growing in Christ, um, especially at the moment in, in this place and in time that you find yourself um, a mum to an adult child and a teenager and just few changes going on in your life? What's keeping you standing firm and growing strong as a Christian? I think it's it's always endeavouring to give up the fight. <laughs> so what I mean by that is um, we, when Stephen and I, we, we talk a lot and, and that, that's one helpful thing. Um, the, the, the talk is always about the demand or the need on us, um, you know, and the, 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 the default is, is pushing away. So saying, no, 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 can't, oh, later, you know, next time. And, and so we constantly feel as though we in the middle of a, like a tennis court and we've got the, you know, those tennis ball machines and all around the perimeter, just like firing tennis balls at us. And each of those balls <laughs> represents um, a need. Um, and so we spent a lot of energy just hitting them away. <laughs> um, but we've starting to come to the realisation that maybe rather than using all of our energy <laughs> to back and, and, and back things away, it's about, okay, just leaning into it and, and, and 
and seeking God's resources and sustenance to keep us going. I, I think that's a better use of energy, <laughs> you know, rather than trying to run and hide. Um, so coming back to acknowledging that we cannot do it all, um, we do need God. Um, spending time together talking. We always talk about theology in our house and we talk about running. Those are the two things, theology and running. And literature, that's right, my daughter's just at uni. So so it's always in our mindset. My time is very much with people, so professionally with people, personally with people, you know, friendships. And then when we think about in ministry with people again, and sometimes those contacts blur. So my way of of trying to manage all of this and, and try to be as robust as I can is, is to spend time away from people. <laughs> and that is uh, just being in my, my headspace, reflecting, thinking, reading, being creative. Um, that's another really important thing for me, just to allow my mind to not think and just to be taken away by some project. <laughs> so I, I do find that, that that is really helpful. See, I really like your answer um, because... It's quite refreshing to hear um, someone say that part of their growth in Christ is actually taking rest. Um, we don't often hear that. We often hear, well, I do this and I do that and I've been reading this and I've been reading that and all those things are fabulous and they're good and they're very encouraging and um, you, know, you can learn so much from those. But to hear about rest, it's, it's refreshing. <laughs> And very important. So thank you for sharing that. That's that's a big factor in your staying strong and growing in Christ. Um, if you could give any kind of advice to um, a young ministry wife who's starting out on this road, I'm pretty much throwing this one at you without any prep, but what kind of advice would you give to, to the young mom or the young wife who's just starting on this ministry journey? definitely to acknowledge that you can actually say no <laughs> you, you can rest you know so rest is and particularly I, I always say that if if you have um and this has been our experience as well and I've heard this from people if you have children under the age of five so for example children who are not in school children at home um at the same time of, as, as you know doing ministry it is exceptionally hard. Um, ministry is hard enough as it is. Um, there are challenges and joys, but throw some children into the mix, oh, and it's it's just really hard. So I think if if I can go all the way back to you know being a younger person with, with children with babies, um, it's about saying it's actually okay. <laughs> it's okay that you don't have to be everything to everyone all the time. Um, you can have your days where you're feeling vulnerable and you in your pajamas and you know you, you, your house is a mess and this is not about performance. <laughs> it's actually about modeling real life. It's, it's about modeling struggle. because um, I think if we try to be and I tried this, trying to be the perfect you know wife with the perfect house the, where the, the dishes are always cleaned you know and um, cleared off the bench tops, the children always you know in the right, clothing at the right time of day. I, I think what that does is it gives the message that we, we don't need Jesus, you know, we, we've got it all sorted. And it makes us then someone who becomes unapproachable <laughs> for people who are actually struggling. So 
I, I think if if we can almost intentionally model, you know, oh, this is this is this is a struggle, um, it, it then makes us uh, someone who is accessible, someone who's safe, someone who has um, empathy um, and understanding of what it's like as a young person with children in ministry. I, I think that's what I would have loved to have heard. <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome chatting with you. You're most welcome, Taryn. It's been wonderful. <laughs> You're such a great interview. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 